where they had come from, they're going to a better country, a greater home, a city prepared for them by none other than the creator of the universe, God himself. And until they reached their home, they called themselves strangers and exiles, as we read in our passage for today. And as strangers and exiles, they firmly believed in certain truths, had realistic expectations of what this journey will look like, and finally had an unshakable hope of what was waiting for them. And as fellow Christians, travelers, and sojourners, I I wanted us to look at how their approach can help us on our journey home as well. Uh, Just a little background in our passage for today. Uh, In verses 8 through 12, it's a story of Abraham going to a foreign land to live in the land of promise, a promise that God has made to them. And not only that, it says that God promises Abraham that through his seed, he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the skies and the grains on the sand by the seashore. And it was Abraham and these descendants that the writer in, um, in verse 13 says, uh, was referring to when he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And so for my first point, I, I just want to talk about the world is not our home. You see, for these descendants, it all started with what they believed in. They believed that they were passing through this world and not their home. It, it's the wilderness the Israelites, Israelites wander through, not the promised land. It's the golden brick road, not the Emerald City. It's the race course, not the finish line. Or for us who live in Hawaii, it's the crazy traffic on the H1 and not the final destination. You see, the truth was very clear to these descendants. And when God had promised them a new home, they immediately considered themselves strangers and exiles in the world. See, by referring to themselves as strangers and exiles, the writer in verse 14 says they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And not just any homeland, as you see in verse 16, but a much better homeland than the one they have now. They were definitely upgrading. And so this morning, I wanted to ask you, is heaven really where your heart is? Is there really no place like heaven for you? Do we feel like we'll never feel at home, be at home until we reach heaven? You know, I know those are very tough questions because many times heaven is, is kind of just an abstract place that will become reality later, but we don't really feel it in our hearts, and, and it has no bearing on us now. It, it, I think it's something that we know in our heads, but don't feel in our hearts. You know, I want to argue that many of our decisions and feelings, in some ways, directly or indirectly, are actually influenced by what we feel our true home is. Um, Tim Keller, he once put it like this, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. Let me explain. Admit it. How many times have you compared yourself when looking at someone else's Facebook page and their accomplishments and promotions? And we instantly begin to compare our own life and self-worth with theirs. Or, 
How about the inescapable fear of failure? It could be with your job, business dealings, your relationships, your investments. It could be parenting your kids or your marriage. And you know that if you fail in any of these things, that you will be absolutely crushed. Or how about the fear that you will miss out on an amazing experience or opportunity? Or it could even go the other way. How about we feel so overburdened with all the things that we have to do in this life, we almost feel paralyzed with making decisions. We become extremely indecisive and sometimes in turn lazy. There is so much to do and accomplish that it makes us not want to do anything. What do all of these things have in common? It's living our lives as if there is nothing after it. We believe that this is it. That if you don't make the most of this life now, you will always be a failure. If you don't reach a certain level of success, ranking, achievement, marital status, number of kids, fame, legacy, and glory, you have wasted your life. You lost out on your opportunity and you have only yourself to blame. We're afraid of making the wrong decision, whether it be future spouse, business, jobs, degrees, moving, etc., and in turn, be filled with a lifetime of regret. And we can take it even further and think that if I don't make the most of my life, I'm going to be a disappointment not only to myself, but to God as well. And we carry this burden on our shoulders daily. You see, We may know that heaven is our home in our minds, but our actions, anxiety, stress, and worries suggest otherwise. Before I continue, just a little disclaimer. I'm not saying that you shouldn't work hard or or be a great boss, employee, spouse, parent, etc. I'm not saying just lie around and wait for heaven to come to you. However, we have to constantly ask ourselves, why do we work so hard? Why does life feel so stressful? Why am I filled with so much anxiety? Maybe it's trying to make the finite temporary world into something that it isn't. You know, in China, my wife and I, we were missionaries the past three years, and we were constantly reminded that nothing lasts forever there. You know, you could sign a two-year lease on an apartment and be asked to move out six months later because the owner just felt like selling it. Um, restaurants that you love and, um, and cherish that could be there one day, be gone the next. You would have never uh, guessed that it was there. Eunice and I were constantly ready for the government to one day say they're not going to renew our visa and just kind of kick us out of the country. Nothing felt secure. However, I think the most consistent reminder of this in China was probably our furniture, right? You know, uh, most apartments in China, they come furnished. And it was the first time that I ever lived in an in a apartment um, that was furnished since I lived in the dorms in college. And for those of us that live in a furnished apartment, we know this. Uh, whether you like the furniture or not, you just have to use it, right? It just comes that way. And, and my wife and I, we absolutely hated our couch, right? Maybe some of you guys can relate. It had these wooden armrests that were the perfect height to give our kids black eyes when they ran into it. 
the cushions were so thin that I stuffed cardboard underneath, and I put additional seat cushions on top just to feel somewhat comfortable. But you know what was great about it? We didn't care. We didn't care about it. It was something that we used, and we moved on, right? We never had to worry if it matched the, you know, the living room space, the curtains, the rug, if the kids uh, uh, you know, uh, would ruin it or not. We used it and left it when it was time to go. We knew it was a very temporary setup, and we treated, treated it that way. You see, there's a very big difference in our state of mind when we want to permanently settle on something or if we want to see, or if we see something temporary to hold us over for something else. And maybe some of you feel or have felt that way in your time at Hawaii. You see, these strangers and exiles, they knew that this world was temporary, a place that we just plod through step by step until we finally reach our permanent home. Is that what we, we believe in? Is this truth clear in the way that we live our lives to ourselves and to others? Or have we found ourselves trying to settle down here on this world? Which leads me to my second point. You know, as travelers, we have to be sure of our destination. But a smart traveler should be, have, also have a realistic idea of what this journey will be like. And we can believe that this is not our home. Heaven is believing in that truth. Maybe for some of us, that's not a problem. We already got that. However, the very thing that can unravel our determination to get to our destination can be, ha- can be having an unrealistic expectation of what this journey will be like. In our passage, uh, in verse 15, it says, if you look with me, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. What does this mean? Abraham and his descendants, they knew how difficult this journey would be. So much so that they knew if they had thought about what they had left behind, what they sacrificed in obeying God by leaving, they would be tempted to return. They put their complete faith in God's promise of preparing them a better home. And Abraham, he he didn't even want Isaac to physically return to their homeland to find a wife, right? He actually sent a servant to bring Isaac's wife to them. And and this is kind of the same sentiment of what Paul was saying when he says in Philippians 3.13, the one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth onto those things that are before. I press toward the mark for the price of the high calling of God is Christ Jesus. You see, not having a realistic expectation of this journey was something the Israelites knew all about, right? They were experts in this. You see, Moses, we know the story. They, they told them that God had prepared a land for them, the promised land. Sounds great, right? Uh, They were told that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Who wouldn't want that, right? And it all started off with such a dramatic beginning, right? They actually walked out on their Egyptian masters that had enslaved them. They marched through the parted Red Sea, and they were off to the promised land. You can imagine, if you put yourself in their shoes, they must have been thinking, this is so exciting, right? This is going to be great. We are walking through this Red Sea to go to our promised land. 
But then what happens after they cross? Dry desert. (laughs) Sand everywhere. Nothing exciting. For 40 years, and only suffering, waiting, eating bland food, so much quail and manna everywhere. And they couldn't help but look at their previous life in Egypt, even though they were slaves. And it said that they looked and longed for the things that they had in Egypt. They were completely unprepared to deal with how hard and difficult and frustrating this journey was. They had a completely different set of expectations that were obviously not met. Why is this journey so hard? Why does he have us walk through this wilderness? You know, there's a lot of things that could be said about why God lets us suffer. But keeping with the traveling home analogy, I just wanted to share two of those reasons. Number one, it's through the wilderness that we know what's really in our hearts. Isn't it right? Let me explain. When it gets difficult and painful... We immediately go into survival mode, right? We reach for the very things that give us comfort, assurance, happiness, worth, to just get us through. We grab the very thing that we find most stabilizing in our life. For me, I found that it was my job as a pastor. Um, And I didn't know this until I went to China, which I call the wilderness on steroids, right? Right. When I was a pastor, I was preaching regularly, I was teaching regularly, I was getting encouragements from the church members, they were praying for me, they were constantly affirming me and appreciating me. My first year as a missionary in China, that was all taken away from me. I didn't know the language, so I couldn't talk to anyone. No one could say that they liked my sermon or Bible study because I couldn't talk their language, right? So my only ministry was to my family to be a good husband, and to be a good father. And all of a sudden, this need to be affirmed and praised and and encouraged, I shifted it over to my wife and my kids. And so I found myself, I'm folding the laundry. I'm like, honey, look at how well I folded this sock. Isn't this amazing? She's like, are you kidding me? That's what you're supposed to do. These kids, I'm reading the book. I was like, Kids, don't I read this book? It's so great. I mean, make it so exciting. They're like, okay, daddy, whatever, right? I was driving my family crazy because I was constantly hungering and thirsting for their praise. And I, I realized that it was because I was getting this from my job. Christ was not enough for me. It was Christ and the praises that come with serving him. That was what I was looking for. I wouldn't have known that had I not gone through the wilderness. And that is when you will know if Christ is truly your source of comfort, assurance, happiness, and worth. Secondly, why does he make us go through the wilderness? It's only through suffering do we really know what we need on this journey. Imagine, if we're going up on a hot air balloon and you're starting to sink, what do you do first? You get rid of everything that you don't need so that you can start rising, right? You throw out anything so that you could keep on ascending. Likewise, as Jonathan Edwards once said, the way to heaven is ascending. We must be content to travel uphill, though it be hard and tiresome, and contrary to the natural bias of our flesh. What did he mean by that? 
when we go through this uphill journey filled with suffering, God really has a way of graciously making us see what we really need and what we don't need. And ultimately, in his infinite love and compassion, he makes us see that all we need is Christ on this journey. If Jesus is really all that we need on this journey, his yoke becomes light. It becomes easy. But it's when we start putting Jesus and other things that we feel like we need, that is when the journey becomes that much more difficult and harder. Now, before I continue, I just want to make this one point clear. We can easily think that God kind of makes us go through the wilderness to test us. He doesn't have to test us. God knows how we would react. No, no, no. He leads us through the wilderness to let us see for ourselves the depth of our sins and understand personally how much we need Christ. Not day by day, but moment by moment. You know, Barbara Duguid, he writes, uh, she writes in Extravagant Grace, God is not captivated by our attempts to please him. He is riveted by the obedience of his son and delighted by the goodness of Jesus Christ. God loves it when we are dazzled by the brilliant glory of his son as well. You see, God, he uses the wilderness to help us be mesmerized by Christ's glory and revel and rest in what he did for us. You see, if the wilderness wasn't hard, we would never probably get to this point. Which leads me to my final point for today. Even if we know that God has prepared for us a new and better home in heaven, the wilderness, it is rough. It's filled with suffering and pain and a lot of brokenness. We have to know what is waiting for us is far greater than what we have now. Isn't that right? At the end of the day, we ask ourselves, God, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Will it be worth it? Well, what is heaven? What makes this home so great? John Newton once put it like this. Heaven is where our highest end and highest good can be obtained. Again, heaven is our, where our highest end and our highest good can be obtained. What does that mean? If you feel like you're living a life that's constantly moving without you, heaven will finally be a place where you can rest without the fear of being left behind. It'll be a place where you can finally worship God with a full and pure heart, not because we feel like we should do it or because it's the right thing to do or, or you grew up doing it or you want to show a good example to your kids, but simply because you can't help but want to. Because that's what you were made to do. Because that's where you belong. See, heaven is a place where you don't ever have to worry about being judged because you've already been judged by the judge and past. It is the highest end. It is the highest good. And it all revolves around God and his glory. And, and as hard as it is to go through the wilderness, God, he gives us brief glimpses of what's waiting for us. He doesn't have to, he doesn't just leave us to fight for ourselves in this wilderness. He gives us small reminders, small oases in the middle of the desert of what he has prepared for us. Again, Jonathan Edwards, he eloquently wrote one time, 
fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. They are scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but the streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. What does this mean? Each good experience that we have here is just a small sliver of what we will experience in heaven. Just a drop. Everything that is good is only a shadow of what is to come. You know, all those times that you said to yourself, this is perfect. I wish this didn't have to end. It won't end. The feeling you get from helping a friend that really needed you, the the overwhelming love you feel when you hold your newborn for the first time, when you know that the person that you love actually loves you back, the awe that you feel when you see something so big and so grand that makes you feel so tiny, music, so beautiful, it moved you to tears, a brief moment where nothing is troubling you, all just slivers of what is to come. You see, when it gets difficult in the wilderness, just remember, there is something far greater that is being prepared for us. This wilderness will just be a distant memory in comparison of what we will experience in heaven. This means that our deepest sufferings, no matter what, will always be finite, temporary. This suffering, as insufferable as it may be at that moment, will eventually pass. But the joys that we experience in this life, oh my goodness, it is just a taste. Just a taste, a glimpse of what we will experience eternally in our new home. Our sufferings are temporary, but our joys are eternal. And so, we don't have to hate this world. Enjoy the things that God has blessed you with. Love your friendships and family. Savor that Kahlua pork, right? Travel around the world. Get involved with supporting RUF. (laughs) But always remember, good things that we experience are not supposed to want to make us settle here. But it just is supposed to remind us that it is just a small taste of what is to come. The highest end. The highest good. Unlike Abraham, who places faith on God's promises, we have something far greater, don't we, brothers and sisters? God not only promised to save us and deliver us into the promised land, but he guaranteed it by sending his son, Jesus. You know, Jesus, he voluntarily left his home, knowing full well how difficult the wilderness would be for him. You see, he knew he was going to be loved and revered, but then also treated as a stranger and exile, and eventually as an enemy and a criminal. You see, while we can be filled with hope of the new home we'll gain in Christ, he came down to us willingly to leave his home and enter into the wilderness because of his love for us. You see, he knew how unbearable the road to Calvary would be when shouldering all of our sins. Not only did he have realistic expectations of how hard this task would be, but he also knew what was actually going to happen, and yet he still did it anyways. 
unlike the assurance we receive in knowing that God is with us in the wilderness, Jesus was willing to be forsaken by God and die absolutely alone when crucified on the cross for us. See, brothers and sisters, when he died and he rose again, as we sang today, Christ guaranteed our entrance into our final home to be with him. And on on the day when we arrive, he will say, Welcome home, my good and faithful servant. You see, Jesus not only prepared a physical home, heaven, but he also established a relationship with us, one in which we are accepted and loved despite our shortcomings, a place where we can finally find rest and peace because he did the work for us that we couldn't do. When we are with Jesus, we are finally home in every sense of the word. This is the better home he has prepared for us. So if heaven is your home, this changes everything. This changes everything. Not just what happens to us after we die, but this changes us right now, at this moment. How? This should then give us the confidence and boldness to take risks for Christ because we know that this life is not all there is. We don't have to be paralyzed by the possibilities of making mistakes and living with regret. We don't need to live this life to prove our worth because Christ believed we were worthy enough to die for, save, and bring with him in our final home. This should also give us hope because we, when we are in the deep valleys of life, number one, we know that the wilderness is rough, but it's never pointless. God always uses it for our benefit and his glory while, we walk, while he walks through it with us. And secondly, it also means that no matter how difficult our sufferings may be, there will always be an end to it. And finally, knowing that heaven is our home, this should change us by making us the most joy-filled and hopeful people on this earth. Because we know that anything good here on this earth is just a small sliver a small drop of what is waiting for us. Heaven is glorious. Heaven is our home. It's worth waiting for. It's also worth living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word this morning, for reminding us of what you have prepared for us and what you sacrificed in order for you to prepare this final home for us. Oh God, I pray that as we look to heaven. Lord, may that change us here and now because, Lord, uh, it gives us the confidence and the joy and the hope of what is waiting for us on that final day. Thank you so much for this time. Uh, We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, John.